Hey everyone, I'm Jim Ambusky, and this is Conversations at the Washington Library. In 1752, George Washington joined the Masonic Lodge in Fredericksburg, Virginia. He was just 20 years old. Despite his early interest in masonry, Washington was not as active in the organization as some might imagine, but Masonic Lodges became important sites of social gathering for men in early America. And while masons and Masonic rituals played important roles in the American Revolution and in the early days of the Republic, you won't find any conspiracy theories here. On today's show, Mark Tabert joins me to discuss his new book, A Deserving Brother, George Washington and Freemasonry, which was published by the University of Virginia Press in 2022. Tabert is Director of Archives and Exhibits at the George Washington Masonic National Memorial in Alexandria, Virginia. So sharpen your chisel and tighten your apron as we welcome a deserving brother with Mark Tabert. Mark, we're going to talk about George Washington as a deserving brother, which happens to be the prime title of your book about George Washington and Freemasonry. But I thought it might be helpful to do some world building here and look at what Freemasonry is and how it existed in the 18th century. I mean, as you, as I'm sure you're aware, right, anyone who's seen the National Treasure movies has a, shall we say, certain assumptions about Masonry and what it is. And so who are the Freemasons? What is this organization that we're talking about? Thank you for having me. It's good to be here. I think the way to think about Freemasonry is simply as a club, as a fraternal organization. And while we take for granted these days the idea of people getting together in hotels, restaurants, in special buildings or other things to enjoy whatever their interest is or what their hobby is, those things didn't always exist. And so there is a history of organizations, and Freemasonry is at the foundation of all that. It started, as far as we know, amongst Scottish stonemasons' guilds uh, and grew out of the guild system in England in the 14th and 1500s, and they're really a development of stonemasons, particularly in Scotland, who had a craft, had a guild, and they started to lose market share, so to speak, and they started to initiate or bring in non-operative masons or gentlemen into their guilds for patronage and support. Over time, those more and more gentlemen came in, and those gentlemen were delineated from operative stonemasons. They were called speculative Freemasons, and those gentlemen transformed or took elements of stonemasonry and created it into a club, a social organization primarily, in Scotland in the early 1600s and through the 1600s. And then by 1700, it became more and more organized into taverns and to other places to meet in London, Edinburgh, elsewhere. By the 1720s, Freemasonry had sufficiently organized that they created a Grand Lodge to try and supervise lodges that were in London. And then in 1723, the first book on Freemasonry, the first ritual, manual, or constitutions were created by the Reverend James Anderson. What is its purpose? Its purpose is a social organization. Men get together. There's initiation ceremony, a ritual. They're taught certain principles about Freemasonry that are predicated on morality, intellectual, spiritual principles. Those stories are based out of stonemasonry's adoration of King Solomon's temple, as articulated in the Book of Kings and Chronicles in the Bible. Those tools and implements of stonemasonry and the allegory of Solomon's temple becomes the basis of the set and the props to do initiation ceremony. Let's pick up on the North American aspect there for a second. As you said, Freemasonry originates in Scotland. It spreads throughout the British Empire. What does Freemasonry look like in the mid-18th century when Washington becomes a brother? Freemasonry is a loose confederation and a competitive organization, a Grand Lodge in London that's trying to establish itself as the authority, a Grand Lodge in Scotland formed in 1736, a Grand Lodge in Ireland that starts in the 1730s, and they are trying to 
determine what Freemasonry is by issuing charters to the Freemasons that they think are legitimate and recognized and following best practices. So it's an accreditation organization. That's important because what Freemasonry is doing in the 1700s is what all sorts of other organizations do as things professionalize. The 1750s on the East Coast, you have lodges from Boston and in Nova Scotia all the way down through the Carolinas into Georgia. But Washington's day, there's maybe only about 15 lodges in what we know as the 13 colonies. For example, there's only one lodge in Georgia, and there was only one lodge in Georgia for about 50 years before a second lodge shows up. While there's six or seven lodges in Massachusetts, there's four or five in Philadelphia. The rituals are slowly coming to fashion. They have constitutions that try to create the bylaws and the structure, but it's a very fluid organization because it's in its first 40 or 50 years of its development. So when Washington joins, he's joined a new phenomenon that's developing and growing through the British Empire, and it's the latest thing to do. There have been early waves of people who joined, and those are sort of in London, but it's hitting the fringes, and it's becoming a thing that the colonists would join because they want to be reflecting something that was even popular five or 10 years ago. So take us then to Washington's thinking about why to join Freemasonry. What do we know about his initiation, and what do we know about his decision to become a member? We don't know much about that at all. First question is, how does he know about Freemasonry? He's living in Fredericksburg. He's on the edge of the empire. He may have heard of it through the Fairfax family. He may have heard of it from other people he's encountered before he went to Barbados. There are books published in North America on Freemasonry, the first in the 1730s by Benjamin Franklin. That's a reprint of Anderson's Constitution. It's a curious thing that up-and-coming gentlemen want to join. I think the way that he encounters it really is when he goes to Barbados with his half-brother. There is a lodge already in Barbados. There's a good chance he met men who are Freemasons when he toured the island before he got smallpox. The best guess is that he got interested in it because he saw these colonials, these gentlemen he met in Barbados who were Freemasons. So when he comes back and he hears of a lodge being organized in Fredericksburg, it would seem like something that he would be attracted to. And the brothers of the lodge, the men who are forming that lodge in Fredericksburg, are Scots. And because it's a new organization, they're trying to get new members. So why wouldn't you want to get an up-and-coming tobacco merchant, planter, George Washington, to join your lodge, especially if you can get him to ship his tobacco into Glasgow rather than into London or to Bristol. And safe to say that Washington had an ambition to go to London and be received in court or to be received in London society. And Freemasonry wasn't a major path to that, but it was a ticket you would get punched along the way. On the edge of the empire, you're going to do whatever you can in order to work your way up into society. I think it's his brother-in-law who approaches him or encourages him. And he's already a Mason in another place because he pays an affiliation fee to join that lodge in Fredericksburg. Well, it's probably advantageous for him, right? As a young man, he's looking to forge connections with these merchants, as you suggest, but also members of Virginia society or Virginia gentlemen where he can network, where he can seek out opportunities, and he can advance his career potentially by becoming a member. And once Washington joins, what are his obligations, if any? So in Freemasonry, the obligation, there's the notion of the way you use the word, and then there's a formal obligation that Freemasonries take. Membership obligation would be largely just like pay your dues and be a good guy. If you're a member of other organizations or clubs, you have an obligation to uphold the values of the organization. But in Freemasonry, you do take a serious obligation, a very serious obligation, on a holy book of a brother's choice, but nine times out of ten, that's a Bible to keep secrets of your brother Masons, to look after widows and orphans, to do those sort of basic things that uphold society, to live a good life. Washington took those obligations upon himself voluntarily by taking an obligation. 
you are promised to be a better human being, live a higher moral calling, and that makes you what a Freemason is. You happen to have the unique position of having the collections of the George Washington National Masonic Memorial under your care. I'm wondering then, when did you begin thinking about writing this book? And as a follow-up, how did you come about the book's format? Because it's not a narrative, so to speak, but it's really an interpretive piece with transcriptions that illuminate a number of documents about Washington's affiliation with Masonry. I worked in museums as a public historian in Massachusetts and St. Louis and Pittsburgh for a good 25 years, I guess, before I came down to George Washington Masonic Memorial. And I was interested in fraternal organizations and the history of American fraternal organizations, especially from 1860 to 1920 is my sweet spot. I assumed that most stuff was written about George Washington already when I started working as a curator in 2006. And it only took me a few years before I realized that that wasn't accurate and that there was a sad lack of an ability either by Freemasons and more especially by professional historians. Nobody's actually gone through and systematically understood what Washington's membership in and his relationship to Freemasonry was. There are books written about it, but none of them were written in the last 60 years. It occurred to me, and it was pointed out to me in 2014, that if I had a frustration about that, I was the guy who needed to solve that. Nobody else was. There are some really good Masonic historians out there who had never really gone through this very well. They're all bits and pieces, so I realized I was the guy who had to do it. In 2014, I started working on that. And the other side of that is, when I started working on this idea of actually writing an academic-level quality book on George Washington, I thought about writing something that would be equivalent of dissertation. But I don't have a PhD, and I'm not inclined to want to get one. And I'm also not a historian of the transatlantic world, not my specialty at all. As a public historian as a, you know, who've done exhibits for 25 years, I could at least put together the evidence and then allow both my brother Freemasons to deal with the facts as they're presented and give them all the transcriptions of all the letters so that they can appreciate that and then give all the raw information to the academic type historians who can then parse it and use it for a greater understanding predicated on their expertise of knowledge that they have on the transatlantic world. So I can at least provide the evidence, and that's what the book has been called, is the evidence book. One of the more interesting things, right, is that he joins, and then there's this period of, I guess you could say, inactivity or inattentiveness. He's got more association later in life, but then the revolution hits, and it turns out that many of the officers in the Continental Army and a goodly number of the soldiers themselves are Masons. What should we know about Freemasonry during the revolutionary period that can help us better understand that era in ways that we haven't before? A good place to start is to read Stephen Bullock's book, Revolutionary Brotherhood, which was published in 1996. It's a very dense and important book. But I would also say that there's not been a whole lot of really good work on that topic. It's often said a certain number of general officers were Freemasons. We know of lists that were published of members of the Continental Army and Navy who were Freemasons, but nobody's made any sense of that. Freemasonry had lodges in regiments in the British Army from the 1730s, 1740s on. And so when the Continental Army was formed, lodges formed within regiments as well and tended to be a lodge for all the regiments from one state. So if you had five regiments from Pennsylvania, they would have one lodge. Having lodges within regiments was a British tradition that went back to the 1730s. So for 40 years, there'd been lodges. And there were regimental lodges 
in the British Army up until very recently, if still not today. And of course, we have many lodges in the Civil War. We still have lodges, Masonic lodges on NATO bases and other places. Washington was not really aware of that stuff because he hadn't participated in the fraternity for about 20 years before he became commander-in-chief. These lodges developed within these regiments that were not really in his control. They were militia regiments or various forms of regiments. He never stood in their way. He never made any really comment about the existence. And when he was invited to go to the regimental lodges, American Union Lodge being the most famous lodge, he attended that twice. There were percentage of general officers who were Freemasons. Some of them are well known, but some of them died early on in the war, like Joseph Warren or Montgomery. Some of them were not really sure, like Major General Henry Knox. We don't have any evidence he was a Freemason until really at the end of the war. And then, of course, we have Benedict Arnold, who was a Freemason and then a traitor. It's across the whole spectrum. And as usual, what happens is people make a categorization, oh, they were Freemasons, and then they don't go individual by individual. And especially in the Continental Army, where there's this vast difference of people from New England versus the people from South Carolina, Freemasonry was a means to unite those men from different colonies, a sense of unity or a sense of national identity. But I don't think just because a South Carolinian was a Freemason and a Rhode Islander was a Freemason, that they got along famously. Freemasonry's purpose is to encourage men of different walks of life and different points of view to come together. That's absolutely at the fundamental purpose of fraternity, but it doesn't naturally happen. Washington saw the advantage of having these lodges to help create that esprit de corps and to create a sense of unity, but you can't guarantee it. Washington only attended a couple of lodges during the war for obvious reasons. He had things to do. And did other Masons, to go back to your example of a South Carolinian and the Rhode Islander, would they have placed any significance on Washington as a Freemason? It wasn't known at all. One of the questions that I could never really fully resolve is how anybody knew him to be a Freemason. The last time he was in a lodge was 1755, and then the next time he appears in Freemasonry has anything to do with the fraternity is in 1778 when he comes to Philadelphia to attend Congress, and he appears at the Grand Lodge of the Pennsylvania Freemasons, Feast of St. John's Day in December. Washington marched in that procession in public as a Freemason, and once he does that, everybody in the world basically knows he's a Freemason. But there's not any indication that he granted any favors or anybody was really asking him for favors because he was a Freemason. In fact, no evidence whatsoever that Washington ever granted anybody any favors for being a Freemason. Well, as you point out, during the war and later as president, Washington's not making decisions based on his affiliation with the Masons. He's not appointing people who are Masons because they are Masons. But during his presidency in one particular moment with the laying of the cornerstone of the United States Capitol, And there's a great deal of ceremony related to the Masons, and they play an important role in that. Take us to that moment and what you see as the significance of the Masons' involvement. I think it's a significant point, certainly from a Masonic point of view, as a pride thing. Freemasons love that. And where I work, we have a giant mural on Alexander Washington Lodge 22 here that meets in my building, has the trowel that Washington used. Potomac Lodge in the District of Columbia has the gavel that Washington used at that ceremony. But as far as we know, the the actual event itself, it's not something that was necessarily pre-planned all that well. We know that there was a Masonic ceremony for the cornerstone of the White House. And we know that that was a small affair that wasn't a big deal. The local brothers did it because there were Scottish stonemasons who were working on the White House, and there were Scottish stonemasons who later worked on the U.S. Capitol. And there was a lodge here in the District of Columbia. Freemasons had been doing cornerstone ceremonies within the British Empire going back 40 or 50 or 60 years before that. So 
they recognized that maybe there should be an event for the U.S. Capitol because they did it for the White House. And then I think what really pushed the whole thing forward was the fact that there was a yellow fever epidemic in Philadelphia going out at the same time that they were ready to start really working on the U.S. Capitol. And Washington was leaving Philadelphia to bring his family away from the yellow fever. And since he's coming down as the chief executive officer to inspect the work and see what's going on on his way to Mount Vernon, the commissioner said, well, maybe we should do a cornerstone ceremony too. Washington was not going to come down from Philadelphia to do a cornerstone ceremony for the Capitol. It's an important thing. He's there more because he's the president of the United States more than he is a Freemason. You mentioned the trowel and other implements. And one of the things I really liked about your book, besides the transcription of the documents, is that it focuses on collections, which makes total sense because you have a nice collection there at the memorial at your fingertips. And there are other items as well elsewhere. What are some of the items that you include in the book that are associated with Washington? And what are some of your favorites that you find the most significant to our understanding of Washington's relationship with Freemasonry? Besides the working tools that he used at the Cornerstone, Washington received at least two Masonic aprons that were given to him, both of them coming from France. An apron is the badge of a Mason. In order to sit and lodge and in order to be properly clothed as a Freemason, you have to be wearing an apron. And an apron comes from stonemasons. Stonemasons wear leather aprons to protect themselves while they work. Freemasons also wear leather aprons because we're gentlemen. They're developed into silk and other embroidered work and other things that are more fancy. Washington receives an apron from Elkanah Watson, who is a commercial agent in France. Watson hears of the great victory at Yorktown, so he commissions a Masonic apron to be made, and it sends it to Washington. There's a second apron that's in Washington's estate that we are not really sure where it comes from, but we think it's the apron that's owned by Mount Nebo Lodge up in West Virginia, and that's also a French-made apron. And it may have been sent to Washington by Freemasons in France, and it may even been conveyed by Lafayette, but there is no apron that was made by Lafayette. It may have been brought by Lafayette when he came back to visit Washington in 1784 after the war. We don't know how it got into its estate, but the other evidence seems to indicate that that was the apron that was sold out of Washington state after his death, ended up in what is now West Virginia, ended up in the lodges in Shepherdstown. So those are curious because there's Masonic aprons that come from France. But what's more important, what's curious to me, is that no American Freemasons, as they created their own Grand Lodges, their own seven organizations, and as they invited them to attend other things when he was president of the United States, none of them ever gave him another apron. They gave him books, but also a lot of sermons that were preached on Masonic ideals using scripture, preached to Freemasons at St. John's Days or other celebrations. So what's significant to me is that those books of grand constitutions from Massachusetts, from Philadelphia, from elsewhere, they are articulating how free men, free Americans, and Freemasons are producing their own constitutions to self-regulate and govern themselves. And then because they're giving them to George Washington, it's a form of affirmation of a federalist government. We're the Freemasons of Massachusetts. We produced our grand constitutions. We're dedicated to George Washington. We're sending it to George Washington. We're affirming that we're with the new nation. They're also demonstrating they're a literary society, that they're organized based on the rule of law, that they have a very specific governance and a specific point of view that they're trying to develop within their organization in order to produce generations of men who understand what a republic is and actually have and live and inculcate the values necessary to maintain a republic. Once Washington dies and the republic is on its own, we know that a number of citizens across the republic uh, took a different tact. In commemorating Washington's legacy and commemorating his memory, 
and there was some discussion of reinterning him in the United States Capitol. There was a big debate between Virginia and the federal government over who gets the rights and who gets his bones, as Matthew Costello has shown. Is there a similar relationship between Washington as a Freemason and public memory after his death? Oh, absolutely. Because again, Washington is a great patron of the fraternity. During the War for Independence, he sits in Masonic lodges as a brother. He comes back home. He attends and joins the lodge here in Alexandria as a brother. But when he becomes president of the United States, he does not attend any Masonic lodge meetings in private. He only attends the public functions like the cornerstone ceremonies. He's happy to exchange letters when he meets Freemasons on his southern tour and elsewhere, especially in Rhode Island. But he's not going to be under the authority or paid heed to any Masonic authority that tries to call him to a lodge or expect him to participate in the Masonic event. And he's certainly not handing out jobs to any Freemasons who write to him asking for jobs. There are letters in the book where there are Freemasons asking him for jobs. Then when he dies, he is the great patron of the fraternity and becomes this great icon, not only because he patronizes and supports it, he encourages it during his presidency and after his presidency to grow and thrive. And this is the point of my book is because he lives the very virtues that Freemasonry tries to inculcate into its members, and he becomes the closest thing we have to the best Freemason there ever has been. That is truly living the virtues that are taught. We would consider him a Masonic saint, or to use the Masonic metaphor would be He's divested his rough stone into a near-perfect stone. More conversations after the break. Mark, what book are you reading right now? Well, I'm kind of in between a lot of books. I've been sort of taking it easy, but I, I will say that I've been reading the Bible closer and closer for all sorts of reasons. But going back to Washington's lifetime, the Bible was central to everybody who lived in the 1700s. And if you don't have an understanding of what the Bible says then you really don't understand how people lived in the 1700s or 1800s because it was a focus of their life. And then from a Masonic point of view, because there's so much in Freemasonry that's biblically based, knowing that history is part of that. I would also, if you don't mind, there's two companions that I just produced in part for the the George Washington book was the Almanac of American Freemasonry. At the back of the Almanac is a table and a chart of every lodge in North America going from the 1730s to 1800. And that was a huge amount of work because I had to go through all the records I could find to demonstrate where lodges were. So I published two volumes of almanacs that go through year by year, every known activity of every Masonic organization, and then the existence of every lodge, colony by colony, state by state, so that we can say safely in 1770, there's only 12 lodges in North America, and six of them are in Maryland, and five of them are in Massachusetts or whatever. They were published by McCoy's publishing house in Richmond, For me, that's all those data points of information that provide a bigger context. Always good to have more evidence. And speaking of, as you've been working with all this evidence, I bet you have a particular document that you're fond of. It's always been documented that Washington attended Lodge in Fredericksburg for three meetings when he received the Intern Apprentice Fellowcraft and Master Mason degree. And then he came back the meeting after to attend a lodge. And then he returned back in January of 1755 to attend a lodge. So we know that. It's been published for 60 years that he attended a lodge. But for some reason, nobody had actually read the minutes of that meeting that Washington was at. They just said, oh, his name appears in the minute book. There he is. I actually just looked at that page and discovered that his best friend, George Mercer, was a member of that lodge. They've served together on the frontier. They were on the Forbes expedition together. George is at the meeting. George Mercer is there to become a master mason, to be raised to the third degree, to become a full member of the lodge. And Washington attends too. 
from a Masonic point of view, from a fraternal point of view, this is Washington as a young man who is going to make sure that he's at the lodge for his best friend because it becomes a very personal thing. And that's part of what the documents show is that Washington is operating in Freemasonry, not from some sort of institutional bird's eye view, but he's operating individual to individual, friend to friend, neighbor to neighbor, brother to brother. And finally, how do you hope people remember your work? Because I always refer to it as the evidence book, I just hope the evidence holds up. And I want the, the evidence to be there in black and white, in print, and then get down to the real relationship, as we all need to do, to really fully understand who this human being was, George Washington, and the remarkable things he did. And then really understand, which we don't fully understand, why an organization that grew out of Scottish stonemasons and sort of grew haphazardly through the British Empire continues to grow throughout the world today, continues to attract the attention of men and fixate them and in their lodges. And there are obviously been women who have been Freemasons for 100 years, too. How does this volunteer association continue today. Think about any town in America. Chances are one of the oldest organizations in any town in America is the Masonic Lodge. That lodge has often been there before it was a state, before it was a county, when it was a territory, and it continues today. And why is that? And so I want this book to be remembered both as presenting the evidence for future researchers, but also to help people understand why does Freemasonry exist and that it is a serious organization that has done extraordinarily serious things. And maybe we need to understand that for what it is rather than trying to presume that we think we know what it is. Well, Mark, this has been great. Thanks very much for joining us today. My pleasure. My pleasure. Happy to do it. Thanks for listening to Conversations, a production of the Center for Digital History at the Washington Library. I'm Jim Ambusky, your host and producer for this episode. We received additional support from Mount Vernon's Media and Communications Department. Our music is Witches Brew by C.K. Martin. Head on over to our website for more great interviews or to check out our other podcasts. You can find us at www.georgewashingtonpodcast.com. Thanks for listening, and we'll see you next time.